Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Strength to Strength once again. Um, this is a bonus talk. We had a lot of feedback, a lot of interest in the first talk that we had last Saturday by Brother Conrad. And so we decided to have another talk to address some of the questions that we've had come in in regards to this topic. Um, it's apparent it's something that is related to on a wide scale. And I think most of us can probably relate to some form of this. Um, so this is a part two of the talk on anxiety, OCD, and scrupulosity. And so Conrad has agreed to join us again to answer the questions. Um, so he's going to share a little bit, and we will discuss the questions that we have had come in. And if there's time at the end, so you can send in questions through the chat. And if there's time at the end, um, we will try to address those as well, or some of them. So before we get started here, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we praise you, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, O Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you are the creator of all things and that we can come to you for strength and for grace. I thank you for this gathering this morning on this uh, personal and sometimes sensitive topic of our emotional and mental well-being. Thank you for Brother Conrad and his understanding of this and his willingness to share his understanding with us so that we can learn to steward our minds um, in a wiser fashion. We just pray, Lord, that you would be with the talk this morning so that it can be a blessing to each one of us so that we can um, if we need, can find healing and can find hope for the days ahead. Just pray that your spirit would be uh, with Brother Conrad as he shares and give him clarity of thought. Just be with us and may your name be praised in all that we say or do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can go ahead, um, Brother Conrad. Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> good to be back. Good to uh, revisit this subject. Um, I want to start off with a with just a few disclaimers. Um, you know, the questions that come in are are pretty difficult questions, and a lot of it uh, segues into spirituality. Um, issues of right and wrong and so on and so forth. And <clears throat> one thing I try not to do is compete with pastors. So <clears throat> I, uh, I'm not doing this presentation uh, from a pastoral viewpoint. Um, so basically what that means is, is that I'm not trying to be an authority on, um, interpretation of scripture and 
I'm not trying to give advice as far as whether something is right or wrong. Um, <clears throat> my approach is more from a, a uh, biological social science viewpoint. And yeah, I try to keep them a little bit separate because pastors have their role and, and I may have a different role and I'm not trying to, to, to enter into other people's territory, if that makes any sense. But the problem is with scrupulosity, <clears throat> the, the disorder of, of OCD and scrupulosity gets mixed up into spiritual understandings and scripture and yeah, and it gets really, really difficult to, to not get into other people's territory. So with that, my, my concern is, is that I'm going to say some things that are may be offensive to some people and I didn't want to do that and I didn't want to I didn't want to direct somebody in a way that would be contradictory to their spiritual guidance um However, in saying that, when people come to me that are, have done one, two, three, you know, they've, they've talked to their pastor, they've talked to their spiritual advisors, they've done all the proper protocol, and this is going on for years, and they're still suffering, and some people extremely suffering, <clears throat> Sometimes I do take a risk and maybe try to plant some seeds that maybe something that is being presented to them in a spiritual way could be um, possibly re-looked at a little bit or considered from a different viewpoint. Um, Because lots of Lots of, uh, regular traditional ways of fighting a spiritual battle don't work with scrupulosity. <clears throat> and actually oftentimes they make things worse. So I, if I say something that is contradictory to what your spiritual leaders are telling you, um, I, I'm not trying to be divisive or whatever. I just, I just want to try to be hopeful. And I don't know how to say it any better than that. It's just really, really difficult. So, 
I want to put that out there that I'm aware of that and that I'm want to be sensitive to that. Um, and I highly respect our spiritual leaders and they have their role in, um, somehow we'll have to navigate through this, but. So that's that's the basically what I have to say to start out. Um, you know, I I was pleasantly surprised the last time that I didn't get any hate mail, um, and I, I would like to keep it that way. I want I want to be a person that's humble and teachable myself. Uh, there's so much to learn, and I'm not trying to. Um, yeah. I don't want to cause anybody more difficulty. So I'm ready for the first one. All right. So the first question that um, we'd like to address, just read it here for you. Um, a very, I very much enjoyed the part one talk by Conrad. I too am familiar with anxiety and depression and have been on a journey to understand more what happens inside my brain and body. How can new brain pathways be built? Is it possible to become completely free in these areas of trauma or will we always wrestle with them until heaven? What lifestyle changes besides medicine help the brain to function better? How can we be honest about our distress without having a victim mentality? So you might have to uh, pop that back up and down. I don't know if I'll be able to remember all these questions, but the first one is how can new brain pathways be built? So this is a really, really good question that Uh, if you read in some of the new, uh, neuroscience journals, it's really interesting how they're talking about the brain anymore and that they're referring to the brain to think of the brain more as a garden. So we used to think about years ago, people talked about the brain being, uh, gears. You know, somebody has a slip cog or something like that. And then in more recent years, you hear people saying, well, I'm just not wired a certain way. Well, there's no cogs or wires in your brain. Um, and now we're, they're thinking of it more as using the analogy of a garden. So <clears throat> we used to think our brain was fairly um, static. Like if you, have brain injury, you know, and brain cells are destroyed that they never uh, regrow and things like that. And they're, we're finding out that that's not totally true, especially not in relation to um, the actual neuro cells. So the interesting thing is, the language they're using is very similar to biblical language, like the idea of pruning, the idea of new growth. Um, 
say when a when a baby is one year old or in that vicinity, they have the most neuro cells that they'll ever have. Okay. And what happens is as we learn to walk and talk, a lot of our cells actually quit being used and other cells become more organized as we develop. So for instance, language of an infant makes every noise of every language that exists in the world. As they learn to talk, they learn to not make some sounds and they learn to group other sounds together. So there's, <clears throat> there's neuro cells that quit being used. And when that happens, they become apathetic and eventually they, they become inactive and die. So, <clears throat> and as we go through life, as we expose ourselves to new ideas and new thoughts and new experiences, we actually grow new and more neuro cells in that area. So you need a certain amount of stress to stimulate brain growth, but you don't want too much stress. So too much stress can actually hinder brain growth. But if you think of it as a garden, you know, you have to put that garden through some stress to prepare it for seeds and for growth. And then as things grow, you know, the weeds are pruned uh, and the and the good stuff comes forward. So <clears throat> try to think of your brain as a more of a living, changing organism than something that's just static and fixed. So stimulate it by exposure. That would be a good way to think about it. Is it possible to come completely free in these areas of trauma or will we always wrestle with them and have So we don't use the word cured. Um, we talk about you can become well or very functional or you can become life is a battle. So it's like the idea of getting to a point where it's, it's not a part of your existence isn't going to happen, but we can help people get to the point where they love life and they enjoy the battle and they actually thrive. So the, the term human doesn't depict something that's perfect. What lifestyle changes besides medicine help the brain to function better? Well, therapy would be a big one. Um, you know, if confessing your faults one to another that you may be healed. So a lot of healing takes place in the context between two people interacting. So 
many times I believe God comes to us through other people. And you can pray about it personally. You can do all these things and they're very good and proper. But until you get to the point where you can actually enter into a relationship with another person and communicate these things and share these things, uh, it's hard to experience healing. How can we have be honest about our distress without having a victim mentality? This is a fine a fine line to walk. But to me, one of the biggest differences is if you use your difficulties as an excuse not to fight, then you're becoming a victim. Like, I can't do that because my back hurts or I can't do that because I have OCD or, you know, what I want to see is people owning their difficulties and saying, you know what, I have this difficulty, but if I use this tool, it enables me to get this job done. And there's help out there. There's, there's tools that you can use. And yeah, just don't whine about it. Just don't whine about it. I mean, life is hard. Life is suffering. There's a lot of tragedy in life. And, and, you know, I think just embracing our suffering, I think just changes the picture. There's nothing, suffering is good. There's nothing wrong with suffering and we need to embrace it. Um, running away from suffering is just a, a bad idea. And you get the feeling when you relate to some people that they feel like they've been jilted by life, you know, Ever since they were a kid, you know, maybe their mom didn't have enough time to give them attention and this and that. And it seems like they develop a personality that is just needy and fretful and, and whiny. And, um, I just don't think that thing, it just doesn't make things better. It's, as difficult as it seems, Bitterness and resentment only make things worse. So. All right. Thank you for those answers. Um, moving on to the second question here. Anxiety and OCD is something I've dealt with with pretty much my whole life but only in recent years has it gotten markedly worse to the point of forcing me to seek help for it. Some of the reason I didn't earlier is because of the stigma associated with going for counseling or therapy and or medication. How can I help others struggling with mental illness? And are there any support groups 
in Mennonite community. So this is a really tough question. And I don't want to, so the question is, how can I help this person suffering from their own maladies? And they're asking the question of how they can help other people. And this is, I just want to take a little bit of liberty here and say that this is a, tends to be a, a thing among us conservative people that <clears throat> if a person has a problem, it's because they're not thinking of others enough and they're thinking too much about themselves and their own issues. And we sing this teach our children this little song, you know, Jesus first, others second, yourself last. Well, you can't help other people very long unless you take care of yourself first. So typically a person with OCD has a very low sense of their own personal value. And... There's a, such a thing as self-care that's appropriate. And lots of times people with OCD and scrupulosity, when you actually get inside of them, they have a very, a very um, low sense of their value as a person. So, one of our favorite verses is, is if Jesus quoted the verse that says, if any man would, wants to follow me, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And we make a, a pretty big deal about self-denial. Um, this is a pretty complex thing because <clears throat> the self that we need to deny is actually an imposter. And I like to go back to the beginning. In the beginning, Adam and Eve was created perfect. And there was no self about them that they had to deny. Now they took on sin and a new nature and and in a sense we all have and when we when that happens it's kind of like this shroud comes down over us and we just can't see and comprehend things correctly ever after. But then Jesus come along and he referred to himself as a second Adam. And I think the connection is, is that 
When Jesus says he's the second Adam, he's not referring to fallen Adam. He's referring to pre-fall Adam. In the role of Christ, one of the roles of Christ in his work is to help us become restored to a position somewhat of the pre-fall Adam. So, by faith, I believe that God has a a picture of us or a reality of us that exists in the eternal realities of each one of us without sin. And, and that's a, a self that as we put on Jesus Christ, we're actually rediscovering who God intended for us to be without sin. So there's a self that exists that we need to own and actually build in. And that is the self that we are in Christ. And that is really, truly who we are, that the self that we need to deny is an imposter. So I guess my encouragement to this person is, and to anyone who would identify with this question is to work on your own problems first. Uh, It's really hard to Help another person if you're both in the dumps. So, I mean, that's all for that one. All right, moving on to the next one. Um, oh, we we missed that last part. Oh, about do you know of any groups? Is there any support groups in the Mennonites? I, I don't know of any. Uh, it's a very unfortunate thing. I think could be helpful maybe, but, um, yeah, unfortunately there's not even a lot of, of, um, I don't know. It seems to me sometimes there's not even a lot of compassion for any sort of acknowledgement of a mental illness, let alone a support group. So it's pretty tough. Okay. How can I teach myself to sit with stress and uncomfortable situations? And how do I strengthen my dam as illustrated in the chart shared in part one? So I don't get caught in a spiral of toxic thinking. I think we're going to, uh, just one, I just want to make a comment. If we can move along a little, we'll, we'll get through a few more. All right. So this one is, uh, how can I strengthen my dam and sit with the uncomfortableness? Well, first of all, we need to realize that there's nothing wrong with being uncomfortable. 
And that's where I think the biggest thing is, is that we want to run away from our suffering. And it's like, we need to just sit with it. We need to feel it. We need to experience it and actually be okay being miserable for a period of time. Um, it won't last, but it's kind of like the more I run away from, let's say I'm scared of the dark, so I won't go into a certain room after dark, you know, and I just do that and do that. Well, guess what? My fear of going to places in the dark is going to get bigger and more incapacitating. So you want to expose yourself to the bad feelings and, and as much as you can, because then you actually become braver. And what was the last part? How do I strengthen my dam? So as you sit with and exercise yourself in, in exposing yourself to the things that you're afraid of, that makes your dam stronger. It's kind of like lifting weights. If you can't lift a hundred pound, you break it down in 25 pound increments and you lift and you lift and you lift. Eventually you'll be able to lift a hundred. And it's the same way with your dam, you know, just feel it and feel it and feel it and feel it. And eventually it'll get better. So one other example I like come from John D. Um, he told me one time after it was about like five or six years after his son was killed in the car wreck. He was like, He's like, Conrad's the saddest thing that ever happened to our family. And he said, it's still as sad today as the day it happened. The only difference is, he said, I'm coping better. And I think that's the best explanation I've ever heard for, for relating to grief. And it's very similar to other, other, uh, feelings that we don't like. It's like, you have to visit them. You have to talk about it. You have to expose yourself to it over and over and over. And eventually you become stronger. Thank you. That's uh, very helpful advice. Um, moving on to the next one. Thanks a lot for your time and understanding of those of us who struggle with this. It meant a lot just to feel like I'm not the only one. And someone understands. I truly have a heart for others going through the same and would love to pass on anything that could help them too. How does the experience of scrupulosity and trauma fit in with what the Bible says about God having not given us a spirit of fear, but a sound mind and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding? How can I struggle and wrestle so much with this while still being a child of God? So the first one, not giving us a spirit of fear. So I don't think that our difficulties in life come from the spirit of God. I, I do. Our difficulties come because we're in a fallen world. So, yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that God's spirit 
is not what's troubling us. Um, the other way I would look at these verses is, is that there's, <clears throat> there's verses that to me talk about a Christian experience and almost the opposite of peace that is beyond our understanding. You know, we're in a battle, we're in a, Kingdom of God cometh with balance. Um, so there's there's a wide array of scriptures that describe a Christian experience, and some of them may seem like they're actually opposites, or uh, you know, describing something that is different than another verse would talk about. And to me, it's kind of like a bicycle wheel. You know, you have the rim and then you have the spokes that go toward the hub, right? And what keeps the hub in place is the tension that the spokes have from the rim into the hub. So we need to learn to be okay with more than one truth being true at the same time and that there can be tension between them too, but actually we'll find our way best through life by navigating between two truths and letting both truths stand. So hopefully there's times when we experience peace, it's beyond all understanding, but there's going to be times whenever we're tore up, Really, really bad. Uh, I know people with scrupulosity feel like they're in a bad state for most of their life, but um, I still think in that journey, you can learn to experience other things, maybe simultaneously. You may have a lot of mixed emotions, but... Um, yeah, I would just encourage people not to get too hung up on any one verse. Is there a connection between trauma and other disorders like eating disorders? And do people with process, with processing disorders like ADHD or autism process trauma differently? And would that affect healing? Yeah, so people's genetic makeup has a lot to do with some of this stuff. But there's always this argument between nature versus nurture. So, you know, you can have a genetic makeup that's predisposition towards something like ADHD and OCD. But usually there's something environmentally that triggers it and actually gets it started. So it's a combination of, of experience and, and, um, genetics. So some people would say that all mental disorders are triggered by 
trauma. And now you still have to remember that what we're talking about is trauma is, is a significant disruption of a person's internal world, not externally. Um, so, you know, what we're calling trauma here could, in some people's mind, may not even be trauma, but something experience that something somebody has usually triggers something like ADHD or, and if you think about trauma, how disrupting it is, you know, you never expected it to happen. And so suddenly out of blue, your life is completely changed. So it, it shocks your, your ability to trust in the contingency of sameness. So a person with ADHD is they're constantly bouncing because there's a level of anxiety there that doesn't allow them to just be at rest. So, yeah. If, if you want to read more on that, there's a, there's an author by the name of, uh, uh, I just picture in my mind, but I can't think of the word, but he wrote a book called In the Realms of Hungry Ghosts. And, uh, he, he has a lot, done a lot of work on how early childhood experiences affect things like ADHD and OCD. Cause he was born in Austria during the second war, second year of German occupancy. And his mom gave him away to a random, they were Jewish and his mom gave him away to a random stranger on the street to try to save his life. And they were separated for a year before they got back together. So, um, I'll, I'll think of the guy's name here before long, but, uh, there's a lot of connection between trauma and these problems. All right. Boys that go to places for counseling often aren't emotionally connected to their dad and they struggle immorally. At the root of all this is a disconnect from God. How can fathers relate to their child rightly to help avoid some of this? How can staff at these places relate to them so that they can grow into maturity as they should? And how can the church recognize issues and help out before the boy needs counseling? Well, without being... disrespectful part of the reason boys end up needing help is because we have this attitude that we know what's wrong with them so the the first three parts of this question are actually statements pronouncing on to the situation what is wrong with the boy and if you want to be helpful to other people 
this is something you cannot assume that you know why and what's wrong with them and why what's wrong with them. Um, Because oftentimes we're wrong. And if we need to learn to listen rather than assume what that we know why they are the way they are. How can fathers relate rightly to their children? Well, we need to have times where we just listen and try to hear things from what's going on inside our child. Um, so we can be the best of parents, but what affects our child's life is is really what they receive and what their perception of life is. So <clears throat> I can try to impart something very good to my child, but it depends on what frame of mind he's in, what he's thinking about when I'm talking to him or whatever he brings to the table. He may go away with a, an understanding that's different than what I was trying to present to him. So <clears throat> relationships are just really complex and, and, um, yeah, if, if you want to help troubled people, you have to be extremely non-judgmental. You can't assume anything and you need to allow your client to teach you about their problem. And then you collaborate together to try to resolve it. So, and that's true even for a boy. Um, yeah. How can staff at these places relate to them so they can grow in the maturity as they should? <sighs> experience, experience. I, I, uh, I highly respect some of these places. I have lots of friends that work at boys camps and so on and so forth, but it always, I always have questions how you can take a 30, 40, 50 year old man or something like that and send them to fresh start and they be helped by a 21, 25 year old young man or how you can have a troubled boy and they go to camp and they, they're under the care of a, 21 year old chief. I, I don't, that's something that's beyond my understanding that I do observe that people get help and that there's a measure of success there. I, but I guess I'm not an authority on that. 
how that can how they can help. I mean, to me, they there's a level of help there. Um, I don't know if it would be effective with somebody with scrupulosity. Thank you for waiting in on that. Some of that's uh, difficult things to get into. Um, we have seen studies that suggest OCD, autism, and trauma as high-risk factors for gender dysphoria, transgenderism, possibly due to unhealthy categorization of male and female. Also, we've, we've read OCD case studies about people who have been afraid they were gay because of uh, obsessive thoughts. One lady who noticed immodestly dressed people thought she was the one singing, sinning. What are your thoughts on this and how can we better reach out to these people, both inside and outside our community? Well, here again, this is a classic OCD scrupulous thought. Um, if you really read the textbooks, there's actually categories that are very definable. It's one thing about OCD and scrupulosity is that it's a very diagnosable problem because everyone has the same types of thoughts. And it's just, it's almost mind blowing to actually, when somebody tells you the troubling thoughts they're having, it sometimes it's almost word for word what the very next person will tell you. And fears of homosexuality and bestiality and uh, sexual fear of sexual perversion is a very common fear and what happens is so we're dealing with people that care very very much about their character and the last thing they want to do is be homosexual or some sort of pervert and you know, maybe they have some sort of of thought or feeling body sensation and this thought pops in their heads, well maybe you're gay. And then that that thought alone is traumatic to a very sensitive person. And then it's like you know, the heart rate goes up, they tense up, they're like, man, I can't think this way, I gotta get rid of this thought. Da 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 da. So they start, you know, drastically trying to get rid of the thought or feeling or whatever it is, and it only seems like it gets worse. So <clears throat> if you do this little experiment, it explains it. So if I tell you all not to think about white bears for two minutes, Try really, really hard not to think about white bears for two minutes. What are you going to think about? Inadvertently, you're going to think about white bears that you don't want to think about. So you can't win OCD by fighting it directly. You have to fight it indirectly. 
So basically what that means is, is that you, if you have a fear of homosexuality, you have to learn to let that fear sit and not pay attention to it and actually focus on what you want to be and learn to love what you want to be. So fear is a very powerful emotion, but so is love. And a lot of other good emotions. And we need to learn to meditate and feel those positive things. Because it, it doesn't work to fight a negative battle. It's like one of the famous evangelists said, he that serveth God out of a fear of hell so surely go there. It's like, there's a level of the fear of God that is wisdom, but you have to move from fear to embrace and learning to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or a negative battle will destroy you. I enjoyed part one a lot. The clarity on mental health issues was helpful. The use of meds to get frantic thoughts under control made a lot of sense. Is it good to have meds as long as, as a long-term crutch to coping? When is counseling or other therapy options to be considered so that the individual can not just cope with life, but thrive and get back to living a full life? Yeah, so... I don't encourage anybody to just do medication. Medication is a tool along with other things, but don't do medication alone um, or you will become a lifelong user of medication. Um You have to, you have to do therapy and interaction with other people to, to get well. And if you, if you do a combination of, of treatment, usually you can get by with a lot less medication. And the medication makes it easier to do therapy and the therapy makes the medication more effective. So it's a, it's a good combination, but just to do medication to me, it becomes, it enables you to continue in whatever destructive patterns of thinking and behavior that you have without fixing them. Uh, it seems to me it makes it easier if you're actually on a good path to get well, it can be very helpful, very helpful. But I just don't like to see people doing it, just only medication. Now this one I just, go ahead. I just love this question. This is just the a great question. So the story of the brazen serpent and Moses putting it up on a pole 
is kind of like a uh, appetizer to the real meal. And the real meal is, is Jesus said that I need to be lifted up even as that serpent was lifted up. So <clears throat> what does that mean? Well, the story of Jesus is a limit story, meaning that you can't come up with a story that is more tragic and more heartbreaking than, than that. And not, Jesus didn't only just take our sins. He didn't just bear our sins on the cross. He also bore our shame and our fear and all of our bad emotions and everything that we never want to experience. He took to the cross with him. So what, what stimulates those emotions and thoughts about Jesus and the cross. Well, Jesus experienced the abandonment of all his friends. Plus, he was the son of God. Plus, he was in the control of a foreign nation. Plus, he was rejected by his own people. Plus, he was innocent. Plus, they exchanged him for uh, a criminal. Plus, he knew he was innocent and everyone else knew he was innocent. Plus he was crucified and he knew it was coming. It just goes on and on and on. Plus he was young. Every injustice that you can imagine and the emotions that go with that, he experienced. <clears throat> so, what do we mean when we say somebody needs to go to the cross? Does that mean that we go to the cross and we just dump everything on Jesus and then we walk away free? Or does Jesus say we need to bear our own cross? And when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see what he did and we're like, well, if Jesus is my elder brother was able to do that, then maybe I can face the realities of my life. And in facing those realities, it kills us. Just it kills our flesh. And then we can experience the resurrection and those wounds and fears and the tragedy of life can be transformed into something useful and we can, we can face life renewed. Thank you for that. Um, that was great. I know someone who obviously fits the pattern Conrad highlighted in this diagram with the body and nervous system spiraling out of control. The trauma that her mind and body is operating out of seems to be the experience of having internalized an overdose of misjudging and condemnation in her younger years. She needs help to overcome obsessive thinking. Any suggestion of getting help with her thoughts seems to trigger the condemnation feeling and sends her into a feedback loop, making any help given register as trauma. Do you have any suggestions on where to start with someone like that? This is a 
this is a really good question too, because what's being exposed here is how sensitive OCD and scrupulosity is and can be, can be and how easily it is triggered. So <clears throat> what I would suggest is, is that instead of going to this person and saying, Hey, you realize you have a problem. I think you need to get some help. You, you just need to skip that part and say, Hey, I've run onto this book or I run onto this person who actually understands ACD and I wonder, I think maybe they could be helpful. And you, you throw that, uh, that possibility at them instead of reminding them of who they are and where they're at. And then you walk away and you let them sit with that and they may be able to, to reach out on their own because when you go to a person like this and you say, Hey, I see you have a problem. You know, I think you need to get some help. That's a judgment on our part. And that triggers the, the obsessions and guilt. So they feel guilty already that they have a problem and that, they feel like they sh- they're not utilizing God's grace properly and that if they would work harder, they could, they could get on top of this. And so they already have all this self condemnation. And this is what's so hard about scrupulosity is, is that when the thing that would actually help them triggers their OCD. So, You know, non-judgmental. Think about how, what you're saying and what it's portraying to that person. And so when a person like this comes to me and sits down, I don't say, hey, I understand you have a problem, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, I just... If they just, they'll come in, I say, you know, I introduce myself, they introduce themselves, and I'm like, you know, maybe you want to tell me why you're here. And then if they don't want to talk, I may say, after some silence, I may say, well, just tell me what's going through your head right at the moment. What, what, what thoughts are going through your head? And, and you, you need to give them space to teach you about what's going on inside their head. And <clears throat> it seems crazy, but counseling is not what a lot of people think counseling is. It's not, it's not me trying to impart some great wisdom onto another person, but rather it's letting that person teach me about what's going on inside their life. And, and then we collaborate together to where that person actually figures out 
their own issues and what they need to do to get better. And they're the ones that do the work. The only thing I do is help facilitate and guide them in that healing. But so many times we think counseling is we go to another person and they impart to us what we need to know. And it it just needs to be a lot different than that. And what really makes a person get better is, is to be able to identify their emotions, be able to verbalize them and experience them in, in the context of a relationship with another person. And for some reason that makes people feel better. Thank you. Uh, that was actually the last question we had um, to address this morning. I did have one come in on the chat. I'll read for you here, uh, Conrad, if you could answer it. It says, you talk a lot about the trauma factor in these disorders. Where does burnout or overload fit into this picture? Is this something that you address and deal with in your ministry? Does burnout relate to the trauma discussion or does it fall into another category? So burnout we have difficulty with this as Christians because we quote to ourselves verses like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when we get tired and burn out, we can get a guilt trip that we're just not in Christ enough and we're just not spiritual enough or we could just fly right through this but we need to understand that those types of promises were made in light of genesis chapter one and it says in the beginning god created a man and a woman and the very term man and woman or human being insinuates something that is in is is very fallible and so you have to understand these types of verses in the context that they're given. And my old school teacher, Dwayne Tucker, used to tell us in school that if we didn't understand the first three chapters of Genesis, we really didn't have any business in the rest of the Bible. And we need to keep that order of operations. And the whole thing of burnout falls under self-care lack of self-care and a lack of an understanding that there is a self that we need to take care of. So when you use the term self, we just have red flags go up. But we need to we need to acknowledge and realize that there is a self that needs to be recognized and taken care of. And that a lot of the spiritual realities, I, I feel like there's a physical 
a, a physical reality to every spiritual reality. And so it's hard for you to experience the spiritual power that Christ wants to impart to us if we're not resting and we're not eating food and we're not taking care of our bodies. You know, there's a, there's a connection and a, a, and a relationship there. All right. I think we will open it up to more questions. There was um, someone wondering if you remember the name of that author of the book you mentioned earlier. Uh, well, just give me a second. Okay. <laughs> Gaber Mate. G-A-B-O-R is his first name. Mate is his last name. M-A-T-E. All right. Thank you. It's actually Thank pronounced you. Gabor. Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate. All right. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we close here? Uh, can I give another disclaimer? Sure. <laughs> so, uh, this is a wide audience and I, I, I like to try to help people, but I do operate under the restrictions of a license and it's difficult for me to relate to people outside of the state I'm licensed in. So I'm not against trying to help in a minimal sort of way of somebody that's, you know, many miles away, but I'm restricted in what I am allowed to do. Mm -hmm. What I do is clinical. This is not Terms like OCD and scrupulosity are, are legislated by the government and I can't just operate outside of my sphere of, of what is allowed. But having said that, I, I realize there are people that doesn't, doesn't know anybody that understands them and doesn't know where to get any help and you know I, I do stretch the rules some but I'm it's difficult I just want people to know that yeah I can appreciate that um, thank you so much for making yourself available in this way and answering questions and um, yeah it's fantastic I can see your compassion in this, and I think that's a, a good lesson for us to take away, um, is to approach these situations with compassion and understanding that um, 
people need to be heard. People need to be felt and understood in that from that perspective instead of going at it with, I already know what's going on or what you're struggling with. Um, and I, I say that knowing that that's probably the tendency that I would have in approaching these situations would be, well, you need to just do this and you'll start feeling better. Um, or trying to put my own experience on them and say, well, I've done this and this helps. So you, you should do it and it'll help. Um, realizing that people's, um, problems are probably a lot different than mine and more complicated. So thank you very much for speaking into these. I realize this is a very, a personal thing and it's been mentioned that there is a stigma around this. Um, but that I don't believe should be there. We're willing to talk about some of the other issues in our lives freely. Um, it's, I was trying to think about it this morning. You know, why is there such a stigma? People are afraid that if they open up about a mental health issue, it's going to color them somehow or put them under a certain light for the rest of their lives, you know? Um, so we, we need to try to get rid of that. Uh, because there are a lot of people who are dealing with this by themselves. And if we can't remove the stigma, we won't be able to help them. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, it breaks my heart whenever. Now, I have Anabaptist people that sneak into my office. And I have to make sure that there's nobody else there that in the waiting room that they know or that knows them. And, you know, sometimes their pastors don't know it. Their family don't know it. And it's so sad. It's like, why we can't be more compassionate, Mm -hmm. less judgmental. Mm That's right. There's things that happen to people that is out of their control. It's not, there's, there's most of the problems that I relate to people with is about things that is completely out of their control. I mean, we can't help who our parents are. We can't help what somebody did to us when we were five years old. We can't help what church we're born into. We can't help most of life. We can't change. There's very few things we can actually change, you know, and, um, oftentimes what, and this is something good to remember, especially with scrupulosity and, and OCD, what people present and what you see as symptoms is not usually the issue because OCD and scrupulosity is a anxiety disorder. And what that means is, is that it's a misplaced anxiety. So they may present with fears of, let's say assurance of salvation, but maybe what's actually triggering that is, is something totally different. For instance, recently, a person I relating to got into this 
uh, scrupulosity and she was praying all the time and she had to hold her hands a certain way and look at a certain spot and all this stuff to get relief. And when we, when we got to talking, I discovered that like it started like six months ago and I was like, did anything significant happen during around that time? And finally she said, well, we had a, a rabid skunk get in our barn and, and, uh, a cat got rabies. And so all the neighborhood had to kill all their cats. And this particular girl had several cats that were her bosom pets. And, you know, they weren't vaccinated. And so then it was like, they had to be killed. And then it was like, what was the possibility that I'm going to get rabies? And so it's like, the doctor said, well, don't worry about it unless you were bitten. But it's like, the trauma was a little nine-year-old girl losing all her pets and not knowing if she was going to get rabies. And that's a scary, scary thing for a little child to be worrying about. And so what do you do? You start praying, you know, for some sort of assurance. And then it, it bounces from one thing to another. And then it, at the root of it was actually a very legitimate fear. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need to approach it with a lot of compassion. Well, thanks again. Go ahead. And the, an open mind to, to realize that we're complex human beings and that, yeah, maybe much different than what we think. There's a quote here I'd like to read. Uh, nobody escapes being wounded. We're all wounded people whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. The main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. I appreciate that. Well, thanks a lot again. Um, for coming on and addressing these difficult topics and making yourself vulnerable in sharing your thoughts about these things. And I thank everyone who joined us here this morning. Um, if there is a, a big takeaway on this, it is to be compassionate with the people who are dealing with this. And if you're dealing with it yourself, seek help. Don't be afraid to talk about it. I appreciate that you mentioned in this talk and the last one that Communicating these things to people helps and how relational these things are. Um, to me, that's a biblical concept in dealing with a lot of things in our lives is, is a relationship with someone and showing love in on the hearing or the addressing of it and the humility in being able to open up and, and, and ask for help. 
Um, so these are intricate webs, I guess, of relationships that we need to have strong relationships with people so that they can come to us and that we can go to them. And I see in this the um, a healthy functioning of the body of Christ in being able to um, have room for these difficulties and to have room for where places where we can share our difficulties along these lines. So God bless you in your work and God bless you for joining us this morning. Um, we are having, this was a special event this morning, so there will be another uh, strength to strength next weekend on the 16th. And that'll be called thinking well, how our communities have failed and how they can succeed by Lynn Martin. And so you're all welcome to join us again next Saturday morning at six o'clock in the morning for that talk. And before we close, would you mind um, saying a prayer, Conrad? Sure. Father God, we come to you again this morning, knowing that and trusting that you're a high and holy God and that you care about us as human beings. We thank you so much for Jesus that came from you and came to the earth and showed us how to live as human beings. We thank you that we're not necessarily called to divinity, but that you have made it possible for us to live well as human beings and that we can put our faith in the faith of Jesus Christ that he had in you as his father. And that when life here is done, that you'll present us to him faultless. We pray for all those who are suffering in the world, especially in our own communities. And especially pray for those father who somehow the very avenue of their hope seems to bring them into more bondage and we pray that that there could be an opening and that there could be a, a space, a crack in the wall that these people can reach out and find some hope and some liberation from the, the prison of their own minds. We just pray for all the pastors, all the parents, all the teachers, everyone that in the world that is uh, a helper, we pray that they could truly be helpful. And we pray for everyone on this chat this morning. We pray that our needs can be met as we share together, that we could all be drawn closer to you and experience more what it is like to be a a whole person just bless the people that uh, put the effort into keeping this talk going and just bless their efforts and we just pray that it would be something that would be helpful pray in jesus name amen amen thank you brother and thank you all for joining us Um, god be with you as you build strong compassionate relationships with the people around you. Go with God. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.